I think that any given personality, you know, the thing you wear around to interface with society, the tool you use to engage with your emotional support system is propped up by about three to five percent bullshit and lies. And it's this three to five percent of yourself that you have to govern and police maniacally or else your entire life falls apart. It's this three to five percent that's usually the root of most people's anxiety. The thing that keeps you up at night. The thing whenever you smoke a little too much weed you finally get the eye of Sauron bearing down on you. You know, it's the girl you made out with in high school that you said you fucked. It's the guy you said you beat the shit out of in college at a bar when really you just had a terse exchange of words. It's the four-paragraph Facebook post about a random act of kindness you performed for an old lady that never actually happened. It's this house of cards that you built up. If you'll forgive the very cliche metaphor of a house of cards, it's this shallow framework that you've built up that you use to represent who you are to society. It's this suit of armor with an exposed throat, chest, and groin that could be easily dismantled with just the right question. So you spend hundreds, maybe thousands of hours talking to yourself on how to deflect from these basic questions that could destroy your entire world, your entire standing with your community. And just how hard are you willing to fight to preserve this wholly invented sense of self. Whenever your existence is brought into question, do you respond with a calm stoicism and keep up the act? Do you lash out with spittle, mucus, and indignation? Do you roll over and show your raw nerves and exposed belly and pray that whoever has caught you will take pity upon you? You know, what if that 3-5% to was more like 40 to 50 percent. What are you gonna do about it, asshole? Where did you learn your trade, you stupid fucking cunt, you idiot? Whoever told you that you could work with men? I don't care whose nephew you are, who you know, whose dick you're sucking on, you're going out. You want to win by one point or fucking 30 points, KG? Right? I see you out there when the fucking stadium's all booed. Come on, KG. This is no different than that. This is me. All right? I'm not a fucking athlete. This is my fucking way. This is how I win. Hello, and thank you so very much for joining us again here on Trash Trafficking. I'm your host, Matt, and today we're going to be continuing Cronenberg Month with 2005's A History of Violence. But before that, I want to give a huge thank you to Artmare Fuel on Instagram. That's Savannah. She's created us a new logo slash uh, thumbnail for the podcast, and it's a Disco Elysium-inspired portrait of yours truly. Now I say she gave it to us because I think my visage is a gift to all of humanity. I kid, but check her out on Instagram at ArtMareFuel. If you have any graphic design needs, please hit Savannah up. Well, with that being said, I think we're going to jump right into what I've been watching this past week. Since last week, I've finished the Dead Ringers limited series on Prime, all six episodes, and a couple corrections on my coverage on last episode. I kept calling him gynecologist, which isn't inaccurate, but obstetrician is more accurate since they're dealing more in the childbirth. The OB and OBGYN being short for obstetrician, the GYN being short for gynecology. Now, if you're a woman listening to this, you're probably thinking, no fucking shit, Matt. Are you going to explain an ear, nose, and throat doctor next? And to that I say, hey, I may have an 8th grader's understanding of female anatomy, but I'm learning. This show's been very educational for me. And I'm sorry my genitalia isn't arranged like the lament configuration from Hellraiser. Uh, Another correction is I said Elliot was doing a lot of coke. Turns out she had been crushing up barbiturates and snorting them. 
presumably Xanax, I guess. That's the most popular barbiturate on the market. I don't want to touch too much on plot, because as I've said in the past, I don't particularly care about spoilers, but I know a lot of people do, and this is a really good series that I think most people should check out, so I'll try my best not to spoil. So we'll just touch on some themes from last week to expand upon and maybe talk on some new ones. Uh, I think the class conversation is expounded upon in the later episodes of the series. Uh, we get this vignette from the patriarch of the, we'll just call him the Sackler family because that's who they're supposed to be. And for whatever reason, I can never remember the fictional version of the family name. It, I think it's similar. It might be Sandler, the, the Sandler family crushing America with the opioid crisis. But anyway, the patriarch of the Sackler family tells this vignette about how breakthroughs were made in OBGYN, gynecology, whatever you want to call it, through uh, this enslaved woman with a deformed pelvis having over 30 operations to uh, fix this and how it led to a lot of medical breakthroughs. But when you really examine that, you know, number one, there's zero consent on this woman's part because she's a slave. And number two, we're talking about mid-19th century surgery. So if you've ever seen the Showtime show The Nick with Clive Owen, which is about early 20th century uh, surgery and how primitive that was, imagine pre- or antebellum America surgery and how, I mean, there's no anesthesia. We get this vignette told in like a wistful tale of the human spirit triumphing from the Sackler Patriarch, but later the Beverly character who, uh, oh, no, I can't tell too much about that. The Beverly character has a nightmare where she's visited by this slave woman who recounts her torture at the hands of this man. We also have, I don't know that I talked about it too much last week, but with the trope of the twins you know one being more outgoing and gregarious one being more reserved and thoughtful we have this personality struggle between both of them they both seek out to be a whole person and I don't know that that's manifested in both of them managing a balance between ambition and mindfulness or just that they could never be a whole person as long as the other twin is still around. They'll always be dependent on one another in a way that prevents them from growing as people. Uh, another theme that's I think I mentioned last week, but we're going to expound upon, is the pro-life, pro-choice debate gets an interesting dimension as their research furthers, as they're able to grow embryos along further outside the womb, and how... In one scene, they're able to deliver a baby that's only 26 weeks old. And at first, you know, this is a moment of elation. This is a miracle. This is something our technology has brought us. But when examined by a reporter from the outside, he says, well, what do you think this does for the pro-life movement? You know, your advancements in women's reproductive health could end up being detrimental to women's reproductive health ideologically. If you can save a baby this early, well, then it it becomes just that, a baby, and not fetal tissue that can be, you know, aborted and discarded legally. Another theme visited is just how thankless motherhood can be, and how that's usually a big contributor to a postpartum depression, is that the love between a mother and a child is, for most of your life, a one-way street. You're never going to love your mom as much as she loves you, because... At the end of the day, we're shitty, selfish animals that think with our spine more than our brain. But, I don't know. It's a great show. I think Alice Birch, that's the showrunner for it, has done a great job reimagining Cronenberg's original film, along with the novel that the film was based on, Twins, about the real-life Dr. Elliot and Beverly Mantle. I looked a little into what Alice Birch has worked on in the past and none of it really rung a bell for me. She seems to primarily be a playwright, but she has directed a few things. Uh, the one thing she's worked on that I recognize is that she did some editing for the teleplays for season two of Succession. So if you're a fan of that, check out Dead Ringers. Or even if you're not a fan of Succession, check out Dead Ringers. It's great. Uh, Rachel Weiss's performance gets even better as the series goes on as she 
plunges into insanity as both twins in their own separate little psychotic journey. Uh, another thing I've been watching this week, uh, well, not watching, but I mentioned earlier Disco Elysium being the inspiration for the new thumbnail is I started replaying that. And it's a very, it's easily a top five game for me. And that's in spite of the fact that the PlayStation 4 port that I played is buggy as fuck. Uh, it's like a point-and-click murder mystery set in a fictional world, but it's clearly like a former Soviet bloc country that's kind of in disarray as different political factions are pulling apart while you as an amnesiac detective is trying to solve everything. I don't know, it just oozes with style. I highly recommend Disco Elysium. It's probably available on just about any platform now. I know it's on Steam, I know it's on Xbox, it's on PlayStation, and I assume you can get some version of it on the Switch, because it's not a particularly thick game as far as, you know, downloading. Like, I think it's maybe, like, 20 gigs, and the Switch is, like, known for, like, compressing games down. Like, I have no idea how they have, like, Red Dead Redemption 2 or, like, NBA 2K on the Switch, because my NBA 2K file is, like, 120 gigs. It's absurd. But that's neither here nor there. I believe we're ready to jump into today's film. History of Violence from 2005, directed by David Cronenberg. Now, I chose this film and next week's film, uh, Eastern Promises, to contrast with the first two films of Cronenberg Month. I wanted to do two body horrors and then two of this crime drama duology he has with Viggo Mortensen. Although if we talk all his Viggo Mortensen collaborations, it's a quadrilogy at this point. But the screenplay was done by Josh Olsen who adapted it from the graphic novel of the same name from 1997. Uh, the original graphic novel was done by John Wagner and Vince Locke, the pair behind Judge Dredd. I meant to get around to reading the original graphic novel, but I couldn't get it ordered in time. I'm going to try and get myself a Kindle or something so I can make more immediate purchases like that. But I did browse over the wiki page, so at some point in this episode we'll talk about the differences between this adaptation and the original graphic novel. Uh, Josh Olsen also was nominated for an Oscar for his Best Adapted Screenplay. The film stars Viggo Mortensen as Tom Stahl and Joey Cusack. 
I'm not going to dance around the twist in this movie. You know, he plays the two guys. Uh, this was probably my first introduction to Viggo Mortensen. I wasn't a Lord of the Rings kid, but he was riding high off of that at the time. Uh, it also stars Maria Bello as Edie Stahl. Maria Bello, at this point, I had seen her in The Cooler with William H. Macy and Alec Baldwin. And I always thought she was great in that. And uh, this kind of continues the tradition of really strong female leads supporting these men that don't understand themselves. Uh, we have William Hurt as Richie Cusack, the brother to Viggo Mortensen's character. V- uh, William Hurt also got nominated for Best Supporting Actor for this role, and he's only in the film for about 10 minutes and uh, was only on set for about five days to shoot those 10 minutes. So that ought to tell you about how much gravitas he brings to his role. Uh, then we have Ed Harris as Carl Fogarty, not John Fogarty from CCR. I keep making that mistake. Uh, Ed Harris does a fantastic job in this, by the way. We then have Ashton Holmes as Jack Stahl, the son of Viggo Mortensen's character and Maria Bello's character. I've mistakenly identified this guy as a couple different people. At first, I thought it was maybe a young Glenn Howerton who played uh, Dennis on It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. I was like, oh, no, that doesn't really line up. Plus, I would have heard about that if that was the case. Then I thought it might have also been that duplicitous gay ginger from Oz that blew up Matthew Perry. But no, it's not him either. What I recognized him from was the Pacific. He's one of the Marines in the Pacific. He's got this kind of weird, like, proto-Michael Sarah, Jesse Eisenberg, nervous Reddit guy thing going on. We then have our two spree killers, Billy and Leland, played by Greg Brick as Billy and Stephen McHattie as Leland. You might know Stephen McHattie from uh, the horror film Pontypool, which is like a really interesting take on the zombie film as, like, the zombie virus being transported through language instead of, you know, a viral bite. I think that probably inspired a lot of Metal Gear Solid V, The Phantom Pain. Uh, the music is once again done by Howard Shore. And uh, last week, uh, well, no, not last week. It was on, no, 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 it was last week on the Fly episode. I mentioned that the score for that film reminded me a lot of Silence of the Lambs. Well, go fucking figure. Howard Shore did the score for Silence of the Lambs. And I noticed watching this film and some of the more tranquil, peaceful scenes showing this, you know, small Midwest town, it kind of sounded like Lord of the Rings, like Shire music. And turns out Howard Shore did all three of the Lord of the Rings. Uh, The budget for this film was $32 million with a box office return of $61.4 million. So almost a 100% return from just the theatrical release. But I do think this is another one of those that was really big on the home market. I think that's how I saw it originally, was on DVD. And uh, speaking of the home market, this was the last major motion picture to be put out on VHS in 2006. So get on you, New Line Cinema, for giving us that little bit there. A History of Violence follows a pretty basic three-act structure, so we're just going to go through it act by act and do a little analysis along the way. Uh, Act 1. Tom Stahl versus the Spree Killers. Uh, we open with a long tracking shot outside of a motel with a buzz of insects and cicadas, primarily cicadas, indicating the time of year and the outside heat. Uh, we're introduced to our two Spree Killers, Leland and Billy. The older of the two, Leland, tells Billy to pull the car around front while he checks them out. This takes some time as Leland returns, saying, Oh, everything went alright. Maid gave me a little trouble, but, uh, you know, nothing we can't handle. Time to keep moving east and avoiding the big cities. Uh, when Leland asks Billy how they are for water, he holds up an empty one-gallon jug. You know, dismissively, he's like, well, go fucking fill it up. We're not gonna last very long on that. Leland tells Billy there's a water cooler in the back of the motel office and to go fill up the gallon jug. The long tracking shot is still going, by the way, as Billy enters the office and slowly and methodically kind of meanders around the carnage that Leland has left with the hotel manager and the maid laying dead and motionless on the floor. Billy absentmindedly rings the service bell on the desk of the counter as he starts to fill up the gallon jug. This prompts a young girl to come from the back office who's visibly scared. She's clutching a doll and kind of, eh, eh. 
Billy puts a finger over his lips to tell the girl to be quiet as he pulls a revolver from the back of his jeans and opens fire. This is our introduction to the Spree Killers. Uh, they don't really have a backstory in the graphic novel or in the story, so Cronenberg told the two actors to come up with one just between them. And what they came up with is that the older man, Leland, is the uncle of the younger man, Billy. And Billy's just gotten out of prison, so Leland's taking him on a cross-country trip, which involves a lot of murder and assault. Uh, as the muzzle flashes when Billy kills the small girl in the hotel, we snap cut to the Stahl home in the middle of the night as the youngest uh, child of the Stahl family, Sarah, wakes up screaming from a nightmare. The entire Stahl family, one by one, enters the room to console the young girl. No one's sl even a little bit agitated at being awoken in the middle of the night to screaming. They're all very supportive in almost a kind of folksy Hallmark movie kind of way. The next morning, we see Tom Stahl, Vigo Mortensen's character, our main character, can't get his old square body truck to start. This prompts him to ask his wife for a ride to work, and while they're eating breakfast, he uh, kind of prods his uh, teenage son, you know, what do you got going on today? What's what's new with you, bud? I mean, the son kind of reluctantly admits, oh, you know, we're playing baseball in gym. I guess I'm going to suck. And uh, Tom offers some baseball advice, you know, don't let the ball get above your head unless it's going out of the park, and the son kind of tacitly agrees, but, you know, not very confident in himself. Edie takes Tom to work, uh, drops him off in the downtown area of Millbrook, Indiana, where the film is set. Uh, it was actually filmed in Millbrook, Ontario, so they didn't have to change any signage. When Tom arrives at his diner, he has to clean up a little bit of litter spaced around his uh, doorstop. As he comes in, he informs his head cook, Mick, that uh, the waitress, Charlene, is going to be a little late today as she's hungover. So those are the biggest problems in Tom's life right now. His truck isn't super reliable, doesn't always want to start. His teenage son doesn't have the most confidence in himself. There's a little bit of litter outside his business, and his waitress is hungover. Those are the most pressing issues in his life at this point in time. His fry cook, Mick, recounts a story of his ex-wife, how she used to have violent night terrors, culminating in one night where she stabbed him in the shoulder with a fork in her sleep. Now this is just played off as a funny vignette, but this could be a precursor to our larger discussion, uh, this instance being unconscious, reflexive, defensive violence versus intentional conscious violence. Uh, we then cut to gym class where Jack Stahl, the teenage son, is playing baseball, as he alluded to earlier. The school bully, Billy. No, not Billy, Bobby. I knew I was going to fucking do that. I was going to mix up Bobby and Billy. The school bully, Bobby. School bully, Bobby. School bully, Bobby. Looks like a baby Paul Walker, and he's up to bat. He cracks one down the right field, and Jack, following his father's advice, doesn't let the ball get above his head and catches it, winning the game. We then cut to the locker room where baby Paul Walker is very pissed off about this. It's kind of soap opera-y how this confrontation goes down in the locker room, you know, minus the uh, liberal use of the F-slur. Like, the stakes are so low. This is <laughs> this is a baseball game in gym class. This isn't, like, a game between, you know, the other school. It, I don't know. Bobby has Jack cornered in the locker room. He's given little confrontational chest pushes. Come on, you little punk bitch, pussy, F-slur. And Jack uses his nervous guy Reddit wisdom to confound Bobby somehow. The scene doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. He's like, Sh shouldn't that be Mr. Pussy Bitch F Slur? Uh, you're the alpha, Bobby. You're, you're, the, you're the big man. I I'm just a little guy. It'd be weird to beat me up. And <laughs> I, it, the scene, like, saying it plays out weird doesn't really do it justice. Like, I mean, I guess the thing we're supposed to take away from it is that Jack is afraid of confrontation, and Bobby is afraid to actually initiate violence. He's only comfortable with the confrontation. So he eventually just gets frustrated and shoves him with, God, and storms out the locker room. We then cut to downtown later that night when Edie picks Tom up from work. She informs him that the kids are out of the house tonight and laments that they never got to be teenagers together, and she intends to fix that. Back at the stall house, Tom is waiting on their bedroom bed, while Edie's in the bathroom, 
She emerges later in a cheerleader outfit and does a little routine before pouncing on Tom. They have these weird little kind of infantilized uh, teenager lines that they're spitting at each other, like half ironically. Uh, they then proceed to have like the clumsiest, most awkward, but still super sweet sexual encounter that I've ever seen in a movie. They do like a lateral on the side 69 because, hey, they're not young kids anymore. They can't be risking any, you know, orthodox 69 injuries that could come with that. While post-coital, they're cuddling, and Tom remarks to Edie, I knew when you fell in love with me. It was in your eyes, and it's still there. To which Edie replies, of course it's still there, because I'm still in love with you. We then cut back to downtown at night with Jack and his friend Judy lamenting over small-town life while sharing a joint. Little do they know they're being stalked at a distance by baseball bully Bobby in his big lifted truck. Uh, Bobby's slugging back some kind of bottle in a brown bag while he's, you know, hyping himself up to confront Jack. Uh, He decides to peel out and do a U-turn in this intersection, almost hitting the truck of spree killers Billy and Leland. Bobby reflexively flips him the bird and tries to stare him down, but immediately gets the creeps and looks away as Leland and Billy pull off. We then cut to the interior of the truck that Leland and Billy are driving, where Billy complains about how he's sick of this nomadic spree killer lifestyle. He's sick of the podunk towns and the podunk people in them because they're avoiding major cities to avoid, you know, larger law enforcement attention. His complaints about these podunk towns isn't unsimilar to Jack's. He complains about how broke they are at the moment, and Leland says, well, that's the easiest thing to fix. We then cut to Stahl's diner at night. Presumably this is the night after uh, Tom and Edie's 69 encounter. The diner's closing up, but Leland and Billy enter anyway after Tom tells them, hey, we're closing up soon. He sit, uh, Leland sits down and orders a coffee after Tom again reminds him, hey, we're closing soon, to which Leland shouts, I said, coffee! And yes, I have been screaming that at my Keurig all fucking week. I don't have a Keurig. I got a Hamilton Beach single-serve coffee maker. Uh, after this weird confrontational outburst, Tom, you know, reluctantly pours them coffee and tells the waitress, Charlene, you know what, I'll, I'll handle this. You go ahead and head on home. And as Charlene's making her way towards the door, Leland commands Billy to grab her. Billy prevents her from leaving this uh, the restaurant flips the sign from open to close, and then corners her in the room. Uh, He has his hand over her mouth initially, but then drags it down across her titties, and then smells his hand for the titty residue. Titty residue? Hello? Hello? That is a weird sexual assault. That's another thing that, like, Cronenberg let the actors just come up with. Uh, Leland has a gun trained on Tom, preventing him from intervening and helping out Charlene. Leland then commands Billy to do her, meaning kill Charlene. And while he's yelling at Billy, uh, Tom manages to smash a coffee pot across Leland's face, hop over the counter, grab Leland's gun, shoot Bobby in the chest four times. Leland gets a little bit of his senses back and stabs Tom through the foot with a knife. Tom then turns and blows the top of Leland's head off. Uh, We have more great gore and special effects done by, uh, I forget his first name, but Dupas, uh, half of the team behind the special effects from The Fly. Uh, We see half of Leland's face just barely hanging off the jaw. At first, I thought this was from the coffee pot being smashed across his face, but no, upon further inspection, it's the gunshot to the top of the head exiting out through the bottom right jaw that leaves this almost like mandible hanging off of his face. And this concludes Act 1, Tom Stahl versus the Spree Killers. So what have we learned in this first third of the film? Uh, I think one of the biggest things are the different thresholds for people to enact violence. We see this in the Spree Killers, Leland and Billy, who enact violence out of convenience or amusement. We see this with Tom, who enacts violence only in the most dire and necessary situations. 
and we see Jack and Billy's, not Jack and, Jack and fucking baseball bully Bobby. Hopefully I won't keep making that mistake since Billy's now dead. But uh, the inability of Jack and Bobby to initiate violence because they're not you know, mature enough. They don't have the gumption yet. Uh, you could even throw in, uh, like I said earlier, Mick's little uh, anecdote about his ex-wife who would initiate violence unconsciously due to something that happened to her in the past. Uh, another big theme is Tom and Edie's relationship. How much they are very much still in love after presumably an almost two decade long relationship and how they're still young at heart. This opening third of the film kind of betrays the other two thirds of the film in that we're presented this Hallmark-esque story of a happy Midwest family when the patriarch suddenly has to rise up and challenge uh, unflinching sadistic evil in the form of the spree killers, but miraculously comes out on top with the support of his family and community. I feel we will revisit these themes later. Act 2. Tom Stahl, American Hero. We see Tom in his hospital room after receiving treatment for the stab wound to his foot. He's watching the news coverage on the incident at the diner with disdain. Uh, this is first played off as sort of, you know, masculine stoicism and modesty, but uh, we'll find out later that he's more worried about his face being all over the news. Whenever he's finally discharged from the hospital, there's a small gathering of the townsfolk, a couple dozen people, which, you know, for a town of 3,000 is a sizable show out. Uh, they're all there to show their support. You know, way to go, Tommy, we're here for you. I don't know why I used that fucking accent for this Indiana town, but... Uh, the Indiana boys on the Indiana nights. Uh, the Stahl family returns home and are ambushed by a TV reporter. She's asking Tom, you know, how did it feel to be put in that situation? To which he just kind of replies, not, not very good. Not, no, not very good at all. Uh, I, I need to be with my family now. Kind of brushing her off. The family goes inside and we see that Jack's kind of been infected by this sensational story of his father's heroicism. He's, you know, kind of jostling him, saying, you could go on Larry King Live, Dad. Tom brushes this off, of course. He just wants to recover and be with his family. Uh, Edie notices a Chrysler 300, a black Chrysler 300. Now, this is 2005. That's a perfectly nice luxury sedan and doesn't have any associations with pillheads yet. Uh, she assumes this is more journalist. But the Black Chrysler 300 pulls off for now after Tom looks through the window. The next morning, we have a very busy day at the diner. Either it's the Sunday, you know, lunch rush after church, or, you know, everyone wants to come see the badass. We see Ed Harris's character, Carl Fogarty, enter with his two associates. They take a seat at the diner and order coffee. In this interaction, he keeps referring to Tom as Joey. Tom at first doesn't really pick up on this, and she's like, oh, no, no, that, that, that's not my name. Sure, it ain't Joey. Oh, that's good coffee, Joey. You can't get coffee that good in Philadelphia, but you would know that, right, Tom? This eventually, you know, gets under Tom's skin. He's like, look, I don't know who you think I am, but I am not this Joey guy. The Ed Harris character removes the sunglasses he's wearing to reveal a dead eye surrounded by a mass of scar tissue. Yeah, sure you don't, Joey. Yeah. Well, I guess we better get out of here. He's getting irritated. Don't want him to go all dirty hairy on us. <laughs> the men leave the diner, and Edie calls the sheriff. Oh, a funny little anecdote about this scene is that, uh, for whatever reason, Vigo Mortensen couldn't stop cracking up during it. I don't know if Ed Harris was making him laugh or whatever, but... It took multiple days to film this scene because of that, so on the final day of shooting, Ed Harris just opted to not wear pants because he's sitting at the bar the entire scene, which probably didn't help Vigo Mortensen contain his laughter, but I figured, hey, you're going to make me work extra hard, I'm going to be comfortable while I do it, wise guy. We then cut to the town sheriff, Sam, pulling over the black Chrysler 300 with Carl Fogarty and company. Uh, he gives them a warning, hey, this is a town of nice people, and we protect those nice people. Don't let me see you gentlemen around Millbrook again. Again, why am I doing that fucking accent for an Indiana guy? We then cut back to the stall house where Sheriff Sam is informing Edie and Tom about Carl Fogarty and his associates' long history of violence. Dun-dun. 
uh, he informs him that he wasn't able to find a Joey Cusack from Philadelphia. He was, however, able to find a Richie Cusack that runs the local Irish mob chapter out of Philadelphia. Uh, Sheriff Sam then asked Tom, are you by chance in any sort of witness protection program, any kind of WITSEC, anything like that? Tom takes a second to answer, but of course uh, eventually scoffs it off like, no, of course not. What, what kind of question is that, Sam? The next morning, Tom is at the diner early by himself. The lights are off. He's just having a coffee at the bar. When he looks out the front window and sees the black Chrysler 300, it then pulls off as soon as he makes eye contact and starts driving towards his house. This makes Tom break out into a dead sprint on his injured foot from the diner to the home. In his panic sprint home, Tom manages to wrestle his flip phone out of his tight dad jean pockets. He calls Edie and tells her, grab the shotgun and be ready. They're coming. They're coming. The flip phone and the Chrysler 300 are like the two things that tie this to 2005. Otherwise, this film could be set at any time. Tom finally makes it home, bursts through the door, and almost gets his head blown off by Edie, who's cowering, scared with the shotgun. The family... It turns out this is a false alarm. The Chrysler 300 went somewhere else. Uh, The entire family is very concerned for Tom's mental state. This isn't like a normal paranoid outburst. This isn't him. This isn't how he acts. While unloading the shotgun, Tom attempts to, you know, put Jack at ease about the situation. He says, you know, I'm probably just overreacting. I have no reason to think these guys would hurt us or the family or anything like that. I'm just a little paranoid. They're probably just trying to intimidate us and they've succeeded. So maybe they'll go away now. Uh, Sarah, the youngest of the family comes down and reminds Edie that they're going shoe shopping today. And then we cut to the mall where they're doing so. After we see Edie and Sarah enter the mall, we see the black Chrysler 300 pull up next to their station wagon. While trying on shoes, Edie loses track of Sarah and breaks out in a panic to find her walking through the mall barefoot as she can't walk out with the new shoes. And I guess she doesn't have time to put on the old shoes. She sees Sarah staring in a store window at some new toys while Carl Fogarty watches from a bench. They have a tense exchange. In some of the special features I was watching, Maria Bello really praised Ed Harris for this scene because she was having a hard time getting through it. And he, you know, actor to actor, decided to do some healthy antagonism towards her. He would speak as Carl Fogarty, like, not his dialogue, but he'd be like, I don't believe you. That's bullshit. I don't believe what you're saying right now. It's bullshit. And that pushed Maria Bello in a way that she deemed, you know, healthy and got a better performance out of her anyway carl is dropping hints at her about joey's past or as they're calling him now tom he asks her you know well if he's who he says he is you know ask him about his older brother richie ask him about how he ripped my fucking eye out with barbed wire ask him why he's so good at killing and that last question seems to put something in needy's mind it's like you know, even though he says, yeah, anybody would have done that at the diner, it I don't think anybody just would. I don't think everyone has that John Wick gene in them. We then cut to the hallways of Jack's high school, where he's being confronted by baseball bully Bobby. He's asking him, you know, if your dad's such a badass, why are you such a punk bitch? Do you have any funny shit to say now? You funny? You got something funny to say? God damn, I bet your daddy be real shame by you. Now, that's not me fucking up the Indiana accent. The actor made that choice to take a weird Cajun lilt out of nowhere. Uh, Being cornered by Bobby and one of his little lackeys, uh, Jack is forced to lash out in an unintentionally hilarious scene. If it wasn't for Howard Shore's scoring or soaring music during the scene to elevate the violence or the blood and makeup effects... This scene would play out very much like a CW show. I think I already made that comparison earlier, but Jack kicks the bully henchman in the nuts and spaz cries all over baseball bully Bobby, saying, Is that funny now, you son of a bitch? Are you laughing now? Do you know what happens when you call a mentally ill loner the F-slur in gym class? You get what you fucking deserve. 
I'm pretty sure I just clipped all over the fucking place there, but that's how he reacts to this fight scene. He's just like spaz crying while wailing on this kid. Uh, we then cut back to the stall house where Tom is reprimanding Jack for his actions, saying, you know, they might press assault charges. You're not just suspended from school. There's bigger consequences to being violent like that. You know, his parents might sue, to which Jack retorts, oh, yeah, I guess mom isn't going to take the case. Yeah, I don't know if I've mentioned this, but Edie's an attorney. But yeah, your mom's just going to put her professional career on pause to pull your ass out of trouble because you felt like popping off at school. To further drive this home, Tom's like, look, in this family, we don't hit people to solve our problems. To which Jack replies, no, we shoot them with guns. Tom slaps the shit out of Jack and Jack runs out of the house. Uh, Tom then speaks to Edie and she tells him what went down at the mall with Fogarty and she kind of implies that she's starting to believe him. Not that she doesn't believe Tom, but that she believes that Fogarty believes what he believes. You know, he's not making a mistake in his eyes. He's dead certain that this is Joey Cusack. Uh, A little bit of time patches... Patches. A little bit of time passes, and the Chrysler 300 pulls up to the stall house. Tom and Edie walk out on the porch armed with a shotgun as Fogarty and company exit the vehicle. Tom again tells them, get off my property, I'm not who you think I am. Carl says, yeah, we'll leave just as soon as uh, you come with us back to Philly and talk to a few people. Tom again asserts, I'm not who you think I am, please leave. Carl kind of sighs and motions to one of his goons who pulls Jack out of the back of the Chrysler 300, uh, to which Edie spazzes and has to be restrained by Tom. This apparently is her threshold for violence, is the endangerment of one of her children. And, of course, Jack spazzes again. Just let me go, you son of a bitch! That kind of reminded me of the uh, brawl scene from Blazing Saddles whenever it leaks out onto the soundstage where they're filming, like, the Fred Astaire-type song and dance number. And one of the dancers is, like, ineffectually like slamming his fist on the chest of one of Taggart's cowboys like oh you brute you brute you brute Tom restrains Edie tells her to go back into the house and watch Sarah to what she does she's watching the events of this front yard confrontation from an upstairs window through a double pane glass and a trap between those two panes of glass is a fly buzzing back and forth adding more suspense and anxiety to the scene Almost kind of a callback to the cicadas at the beginning of the film at the motel during that confrontation. Carl tells Tom to put down the shotgun and approach the vehicle and they'll let his son go. At this point is when we really notice a change in Viggo Mortensen's voice, his body language, and his facial expression. He's no longer Tom. He's back to being Joey. He slowly approaches the car. When he gets a safe enough distance, he calls to Jack, Go inside the house, Jack. Starting to get that Philly accent back. Uh, Carl says, you know, see how nice everything can be when you just cooperate. To which uh, Joey replies, I think it'd be best if y'all left now. Carl, not accepting that, sends one of his goons over to grab Tom slash Joey. Uh, We're not going to call him Tom from now on. He's transformed back to Joey fully. Joey slams the palm of his hand up the goon's nose multiple times, kind of going off of that urban legend of how you can shove someone's nose cartilage into their brain and kill them. That's not real, but it is a really cool effect in the movie, watching the guy's fucking nose disappear inside his own skull. Uh, Tom grabs a handgun from this goon that he's just disfigured and shoots the other henchman, but not before getting winged by Fogarty himself who pulls a gun. Fogarty approaches Tom's body, kicking the gun out of his reach and uh, training his gun on him. He says, any last words? And uh, Tom replies, I should have killed you back in Philly. And right as uh, Carl's about to end Joey's life, he gets shot in the back with the shotgun by Jack. Joey gets back on his feet and approaches Jack, snatching the shotgun out of his hands, uh, I mentioned a change in facial expression. He has this sort of twisted Bruce Campbell as Ash Williams mixed with like a gunslinger type expression. He snatches the gun out of his hands and kind of grimaces at him because he's still in like killing machine mode, but recognizes that his son has just been through a traumatic event that he might not ever recover from. So he grabs him in an embrace. This is the end of Act 2, Tom Stahl, American Hero. So, revisiting on some themes from... 
Act 1 is the threshold for violence. As we just mentioned, Edie's threshold is the endangerment of her child. And for Jack, his threshold has changed to public humiliation. And also in defense of family in this latest scene. But it's an act of violence that he's not built to withstand the gravity of. You know, killing Carl with a shotgun has irreversibly fucked him up. He's Joey has tainted the Stahl family with his past. Uh, we see Jack lose his innocence in that moment. We also have a few different conversations on acceptable violence versus unacceptable violence. You know, everyone praises Tom for his heroic actions as their defensive, justifiable murder. And we kind of see that in the townspeople support of him afterwards. It's kind of this sick American obsession with righteous gun violence. You know, these are the same people that you're hearing stories now. It's like, oh, no kids better ring my doorbell. I'll shoot you through the fucking door. Well, then don't have a fucking doorbell. For that matter, don't have an address where you can be reached. We also have a few conversations about the toll of violence, specifically in the conversation between Tom and Jack about the fight at school, both the physical cost of violence you know, every confrontation that Joey gets into, he ends up being hospitalized. Uh, the material cost of violence, the potential that the family could be sued over Jack's schoolyard fight, and the emotional violence that, you know, can take a toll on you. Well, this begins Act 3, Crazy Fucking Joey. Back at the hospital, Tom is recovering from the gunshot wound to his shoulder from Carl Fogarty. He's then confronted by Edie over his now decades worth of lies she said i didn't need to hear what happened i saw you turn into joey you know the man i married doesn't tear people apart like that you know how long has this been going on who is joey cusack and you know when you were joey cusack were you killing for money or for fun to which joey replies well both kind of but you know that was joey that wasn't tom i thought i killed joey i took him out to the desert and i killed joey i buried him and, you know, I spent three years becoming Tom Stahl, but I wasn't truly reborn until I met you. Rebirth is a theme that's been in all of the films of Cronenberg month so far. We'll have to revisit that near the end of the episode. Edie then vomits at the revelation that she's been married to a violent killer for almost two decades now. Uh, she questions him about the name Tom Stahl. Where did you get that? You know, that's the name that I have now. The name of our kids, they have that name. But what does that mean? Who is that? And he says, I, it was just available, meaning he probably took it from a dead guy. I don't think we're led to believe that he did do witness protection. I assume this is all done on his own when he fled the Irish mob from Philly. Uh, we're then back at the Stahl house when he's discharged from the hospital. Jack is very cold to his father. He's throwing all the cliche mob lines at him. Oh, you going to have me whack dad? Or you going to be mad if I don't give you a cut if I rob a place? The sheriff then uh, shows up again and questions Joey like, Hey, these men don't make mistakes this big and costly. I think we need to have a serious conversation about your past. You know, implying that, you know, he's about to be arrested for, you know, presumably murders that don't have a statute of limits while being questioned by sheriff sam Edie enters the house and sits next to tom whenever the conversation starts to steer towards tom's dishonesty Edie breaks down crying and tells the sheriff you know hasn't this family been through enough the sheriff backs off and leaves and says you know maybe we'll have this conversation some other time at first Joey believes that Edie's crying is an act to get the sheriff out of the house to which he thanks her. But it turns out, no, these are very sincere tears. She shoves him off of her and starts heading upstairs. Edie tries to go upstairs, but Joey tries to restrain her so they can talk this out. She slaps him across his face and says, fuck you, Joey. Then they involve in a pretty violent tussle on this wooden staircase uh, Joey gets on top of Edie, and it appears he's about to initiate marital rape, but thinks better of it at the last second and tries to pull away. Edie then pulls him in for a kiss, and she begins to initiate uh, intercourse. And this sex scene, contrasted with the very sweet and tender one from the beginning of the film, is very violent. 
It's almost like they're doing fucking Brazilian jiu-jitsu on these wooden stairs. It's got to be like fucking on top of a pile of baseball bats. Once the sexual encounter ends, we see Joey kind of go back to Tom. He wants to be sweet and intimate with his wife while post-coital to which she shoves him off. You know, she made love to Tom. She fucked Joey. Edie goes upstairs and gets a shower while Tom sits on the bed and kind of reflects on what just happened. And then the bathroom door opens and we see a full frontal nudity shot of Edie. This is the only nudity in the film is this this little glance of her naked body. We don't see it in either of the sex scenes, but we see it here as she looks at Joey with disgust and then covers up and enters the next room. We then cut to Joey sleeping on the couch as him and Edie are on the outs. He gets a phone call in the middle of the night from his older brother Richie, the boogeyman of this film so far, with the Philly accent creeping through the phone line. Hey, Brohim. I see you're still pretty good with the killing. That's exciting. Why don't you come see me? Or do I have to come see you? And this is all that Joey needs to hear to know that it's finally time to go back to Philadelphia and make things right. He begins the 15 to 16 hour drive from Millbrook, Indiana to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He arrives at the bar that Richie told him to meet one of his goons at named Reuben. It's an old track betting bar in Philadelphia. Uh, he orders a Jenny Cream, which I, I'm told is a beer specific to Philadelphia. But speaking of Pennsylvania-specific beers, the bar is decorated in old yingling signs from Pottsville, Pennsylvania, America's oldest brewery. He eyeballs Richie's henchman, Reuben, and walks over and talks to him. Reuben kind of looks like a blonde Willie Adler from <laughs> Lamb of God. He's got these big fat fish lips. He asks Reuben, so what do we do now? Reuben says, you finish your beer, and then we're going to get in that Escalade, and I'm going to take you to Richie. Joey just slides his beer to the middle of the table without even taking a sip. In like a badass action movie, we'd see him chug the whole thing and slam it down, but that's not what he's here for. He's not here to look cool. He's here to handle business. No, I don't actually want this drink. Let's go now. Reuben drives Joey up to Richie's estate. It's a large manor in the, I imagine, the suburbs of Philadelphia. He has his own private pond in the backyard. We then finally get to see... Academy Award nominee William Hurt entered the film as Richie Cusack. And he has all of this beautiful mob boss bravado. You know, it's Irish Philly mob, so he's not doing like stereotypical fucking Stugatz generic tri-state accent. It's specific to Philly, and it's kind of specific to an era. The way he calls Joey Brohim apparently comes from screenwriter Josh Olson growing up in Philly in the 70s as like neighborhood slang. Uh, when Richie first lays eyes on Joey, he's very wistful and uh, you can tell that Joey and Richie, while these are fucked up circumstances, are very happy to see each other. They touch foreheads for a very long time, you know, kind of mob body symbolism that we see in things they embrace in a hug he kisses joey on the cheek but you know this isn't michael corleone kiss of death i knew it was you fredo you broke my heart kind of thing it's sincere he's happy to see him he beckons joey up to his office where they kind of ruminate on life you know how do you like being married i don't think i could ever be married you know, tell me about this American dream that you've built for yourself because it doesn't seem real. You know, you've been this other guy almost as long as you've been Joey. You know, whenever you dream, are you still Joey or are you this new guy? To which Joey tells him, you know, Joey's been dead for a long time. I'm Tom Stahl. That's who I am now. Richie kind of takes this in stride, but he's like, well, now it's time to tell you why I want you here. You fucking cost me. You broke into Carl Fogarty's mansion, a made man, and disfigured his eye and then took off without even saying anything to me. No car, no you know, letters, no nothing. And I had to deal with the fallout of your violence. I had to deal with that. And because of it, I can't really advance further in the crime family. This is where it tops out for me. And not to mention, getting here alone was made so much harder because I had to clean up your fucking mess. To which Joey says, well, seems like you're doing alright, even if this is where you top out. I don't see why you need so much more. 
you know, you spent all this time and resources and manpower trying to get to me. I thought business would always come first with you. And Richie's kind of taken aback by this, like, yeah, I know. I know, trust me, I know the cost of these things. But some things can't be left unresolved. Uh, Joey says, well, I'm here to make things right. Whatever I have to do to make things right with you, Richie, so my family can live in peace, just tell me, what do I have to do? To which Richie says, well, I suppose there is one thing you could do for me, Joey. You could die. You could die, Joey. To which he kind of comically, like, looks down and rolls his chair so his back is facing Joey because he doesn't want to see this. This cues Reuben, the blonde Willie Adler, to try and sneak up on Joey and garrot him while he's sitting in a chair. Joey kicks back on Richie's desk, taking away his leverage, and then stomps upwardly to crush Reuben's nose. While on the ground, he throws a kick towards the other goon's knee, collapsing it. He just does what Joey does. He takes these guys apart with his bare hands. A third goon rushes into the room. He quickly knees him in the gut and snaps his neck in a split second like Steven Seagal, and then flees from the room as Richie is firing his gun. Richie approaches the spazzing, sputtering body of Reuben and says, how do you fuck that up? Kicks him in the side. How do you fuck that up? And then shoots him in the chest. Uh, a fourth goon enters the room looking concerned at all the carnage and kneels down to the man who just had his neck snap. To which Richie replies, Well, are you going to give him fucking mouth to mouth? Leave this. Go find my brother and kill that little fucker. This starts a brief little cat and mouse where Richie and the last henchmen are hunting through the mansion for Tom. Richie gets distracted and steps outside the mansion to which the door immediately closes and locks behind him while he can hear Joey ripping apart his last henchman. While fumbling to get his keys out of his pocket, Joey opens the front door and catches Richie with his pants down and aims a gun at his head. Richie lets out one last, Jesus, Joey, before Joey shoots him in the head. Joey walks up to the body and as blood pulls underneath his brother's head, he mutters, Jesus, Richie. We then get a sort of baptismal scene where Joey goes to the pond in Richie's backyard. He removes his bloody shirt, throws the gun into the pond, and kind of washes the blood off of him. He then begins the long drive back to Millbrook, Indiana, where his family is having dinner. There's a place empty at the begin at the front of the table where he would normally sit. The family kind of quietly stare at each other nervously when Sarah, the youngest daughter, finally stands up and sets a plate and silverware in the chair, inviting Dad back to dinner. After another awkward second or two, you know, Jack offers the entree over to Tom now to rejoin the family. I guess the thinking being here that because the youngest member of the family was able to remain untouched by this trauma, that he can go back to being Tom Stahl, that the family can forgive this betrayal, and cut to credits. That's the end of A History of Violence. So, what did we learn in Act 3 and throughout the entire feature of the film? Uh, I think more pointedly, like on its face, we have a meditation on violence similar to Videodrome, but we're 20, over 20 years past when Videodrome came out, and the nature of American violence has changed in the post-internet world. You know, it's no longer the violence that you see in fictional media or on news coverage. It's now school shootings. It's now a ramped-up war on drugs, turning the inner cities into war zones. It's now, you know, high coverage of spree killers crossing America, this American obsession with violence. And it's no longer, like I said, there's no longer a wall between us and it. It's on the doorstep of the average American now in the 21st century. We also have, with this being the Irish mob, some pretty strong Catholic symbolism. Throughout the film, Tom is wearing a silver cross around his neck. You only really see it in states where his shirt's kind of undone, meaning acts of violence is usually whenever you see the cross. We also have him slaying his older brother in a sort of Cain and Abel style biblical meeting. There's also kind of an emphasis on something I've noticed in a lot of Catholic storytellers, which, you know, David Cronenberg isn't. You know, he was raised culturally Jewish and he personally is an atheist, but he was able to de dig into this material, this sense of Catholic guilt, this sense of uh, Catholic righteous violence and wrath as a means of uh, navigating the world. 
when questioned about the title of the film, David Cronenberg says it kind of operates on three levels. You know, initially when you hear the phrase a history of violence, it's in reference to a criminal, you know, their past rap sheet. But then there's also the violence of just getting through society. There's the violence of, you know, being born itself, the violence to like make your way through society. And then there's also on the third level of the aspect, the Darwinian violence of survival of the fittest, you know, Tom Stahl slash Joey Cusack doesn't come out on top in this movie because he's a family man with something to fight for. He comes out on top because he's a fucking killing machine. And now his family has to reconcile with that fact. You know, with the baptismal rebirth scene we see at the end of the film, we don't really know if this is him being reborn a second time so he can return to being Tom Stahl, the family man, or if he now has to accept that he's a reformed but unrepentant Joey Cusack that now has to navigate family life with his, you know, violent past being full bear on display. While his violence was defensive and justified, that doesn't shield him and his community and his family at large from the consequences of that violence. It's still going to be visited. There's still always a cost, even whenever it's a matter of survival. Let's talk a little bit about some differences between the graphic novel and the film. Now, Cronenberg has been on record saying he didn't read it at all. He only read the screenplay that Josh Olsen had written, to which he as usual, did some revisions. He didn't take any writing credit this time around. I, of course, also did not read the graphic novel, as I said earlier. Cronenberg kind of made a point about it, though. He's like, yeah, you know, I don't read comic books. That's superhero stories for little piss babies, to which I generally agree. But I do have a... I do enjoy graphic novels that aren't superhero-focused, and I believe this is one of them. For starters, in the graphic novel... Richie and Joey aren't brothers. They're childhood friends from New York. It's an Italian mob, but in the film they had already cast Vigo, William Hurd, and Ed Harris, who they figured couldn't really pass for Italian, so they translated it to Irish mob in Philly. A mob boss is responsible for Richie's older brother Tom being murdered, so Joey and Richie decide to get even with this boss by robbing and killing him. They manage to get away with it, uh, disfiguring... The guy that's kind of, I guess, the analogy for uh, Carl uh, Fogarty. They get away with it, and Joey does the smart thing, and he flees New York with his uh, share of the money. Richie decides to be flashy with his cash and gets captured by the family that they've ripped off and attacked. Whenever we see Richie later in the story, he's been tortured for the last 20 years. Whenever Joey discovers Richie, he's in a warehouse hanging up by a harness with no limbs. So, there's another thing. Uh, Whenever Joey first gets confronted by uh, the Carl Fogarty character in the diner, he's wearing a pendant, and inside that pendant is a missing finger from Tom's left hand. So, Joey got his eye in that exchange, but he got his finger. So, they both got a piece of each other. I think... In this Cronenberg adaptation of the film, the Edie character is much stronger. From what I read in the original comic book, she's kind of just a cardboard cutout, supportive wife character. Whereas Maria Bello brings a lot of force to her performance. Uh, like I said, uh, there's a history with these Cronenberg films of like super strong female leads really carrying the heart of the film. And Maria Bello does fantastic in this. I'm sure there's more differences between the graphic novel in the film, but I didn't read the graphic novel. Let's talk about the color palette of the film. It's very bright and kind of saturated. Uh, One thing I noticed from the behind the scenes uh, material that I went through is that there's no black or white in the color palette besides the black Chrysler 300 and the suits on Fogarty and his men. And uh, it gives the film an interesting look, but also kind of a visual symbolism in that There is no black and white in this film. It's all ambiguity. It's all gray. It's all subjective, whether or not the violence is justified or how you handle it. The graphic novel, on the other hand, is literally in black and white. It's a very straightforward morality tale about revenge and justice, whereas this is a lot more abstract. And the violence in this film can be sharply contrasted with David Cronenberg's past with body horror, where... The violence is very 
slow, dread-inducing, and surreal. Whereas the violence in this film and next week's film, Eastern Promise, is very quick, visceral, and matter-of-fact. You know, it doesn't spend too much time uh, dwelling on the carnage. It's like, this happened, and if you blinked, sorry, you missed it. Because that's how violence happens in real life. It's quick and unpredictable and jarring. So, I think we're going to wrap up our History of Violence episode. And I'm sure we'll probably have some more connecting themes when we talk about Eastern Promises next week, as the two have a lot in common. Like I said, I referred to them earlier as the Cronenberg-Mortensen uh crime drama duology uh well this has been another episode of trash trafficking and i've been your host matt and we'll catch you next episode every day you wake up and there'll be less of you you live your life for them and they don't even see you you don't even see yourself a dream I was under the ground my friends and family were buried all around and a worm took a bite of me and then he washed it down with a bite of you the same worms that eat me will someday eat you too After all these years, there's a, there's a victory in that. Nibbled on your feet and they nibbled on my toes. They become the same when our bodies decompose. You'll turn into dirt someday, same dirt as me. Like one becomes a two and two becomes a three. I'm an old, broken-down piece of meat. And I'm alone. And I deserve to be all alone. I just don't want you to hate me.